Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. I'm Sam DeCanio. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society and a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. Our guest today is Nuno Montero, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Yale University, where he is also Director of International Security Studies. Professor Montero's research examines a range of issues in international relations theory. He's the author of Theory of Unipolar Politics, published by Cambridge University Press, and he co-authored Nuclear Politics, The Strategic Causes of Proliferation with Alex Debs, which was also published with Cambridge. Nuno, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I wanted to begin by asking you, what initially caused you to become interested in international politics? So I guess growing up, um, I I read a lot about war. There were a lot of books about war uh, in the house. Um, And then crucially... Uh, so I grew up in Portugal, and you have to choose a major before you apply to university, right? So when you're in your 12th grade, you need to figure out what is it you want to do for the rest of your life. And this happens around uh, Christmas time, the decision. And someone gave me uh, Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which had just been published. So an uncle gave me a copy, and I read it, and I thought, this sounds like a, a good topic. And so I, I studied international relations in, in university, and then... For a long time, devoted myself to uh, political theory, political philosophy afterwards, but then came back ultimately to international relations. So you were a graduate student at University of Chicago. That's right. Um, who who were the the mentors that you had there, and and who influenced your thinking while you were working on your PhD? So I went to Chicago. It's a, it's a not a straightforward story. I went to Chicago to work with Robert Pippin, the the head of the Social Thought Committee. Um, because I wanted to study, you know, I had studied Richard Rorty before, and Rorty himself told me, you know, why don't you go to Chicago and work with, with Bob Pippin? So I did that, and when I got there, he got uh, one of these MacArthur Genius Awards that comes with four years of leave, and so I ended up not being able to study with Robert Pippin, um, whom I greatly admire, uh, and so I studied political philosophy with Martin Nussbaum and Charles Larmore for the first few years, and then eventually gravitated towards international relations, I think, for two reasons. One, uh, rekindled interest uh, in the topic. I started the PhD in 2002, so it was a, a time of sort of great uh, activity in, in the domain of international security right after 9-11, uh, so lots of interest there. And also I thought, I came up to the conclusion that maybe I wasn't really interested in, in political theory as a producer, you know, sort of analyzing classical texts and writing another uh, interpretation of this or that maybe wasn't uh, sort of interest stimulating enough, uh, and I was fortunate to uh, to um, take courses, take classes with John Mearsheimer, who became a great mentor and is a dear friend today. Um, and so over time, I, I realized over a couple of years of, of coursework that I really enjoyed studying great power politics and uh, and theory. And so the combination, I was I was able to apply sort of my theory skills, such as they are, to, to apply theory, right, to international theory rather than to political philosophy. So Mearsheimer is, 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 falls under the general category of being a realist. Um, and you sort of identify to some degree with this label as well. Um, yeah, yes and no. Uh, so so, so Mearsheimer, yeah, yes, Mearsheimer is, is, is a structural realist. So he's one of the uh, most influential structural realists working today. Uh, he's, uh, he belongs to a school of thought called offensive realism, of which he is the, the, the foremost uh, exponent. Um, I find I, I, 
I would say I am myself a realist, but not necessarily a structural realist. So although my first book, which I suppose we'll talk a little bit about, uh, Theory of Unipolar Politics, is a structural realist book, I think my my intellectual taste is realist in a broader sense of sort of in the classical realist tradition of paying attention to power, interests, a notion of skepticism about the ability to achieve uh, goals through complicated schemes. Um, that's more my my intellectual family than 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 exactly structural realism, which is fine, but but it's just a na- narrower uh, topic. Okay. Um, so, are there any themes in the sort of the classical realist tradition that you identify with specifically? Um, so, yes. I, I guess I'm as like I'm just sort of curious. How how do you place yourself in the in the sort of umbrella of different realist approaches to international relations? So I think structural realism, which is the which so is what the, is structural realism? Structural realism, realism is the idea. It? So it's, it's it's a school of thought that I would say uh, is born in the second half of the 20th century, uh, largely the I would say the the, the brainchild of uh, Kenneth Waltz, uh, who has two very influential books. One book in 1959. I hope I'm not getting the year wrong, called Man, the State, and War, uh, that basically says, in that first book, there's three ways of understanding what happens in international politics. By looking at people, say leaders, men, by looking at people, by looking at states, and then by looking at what happens in the international realm itself, how states interact, and sort of carves out this third intellectual sphere that he then develops in his second book in 1979, Theory of International Politics, title on which I'm riffing clearly in, the, in, in, in my first book, um, that argues in the second book, he argues, look, what matters for understanding relations among states is how many great powers there are and what are the rela- what's, what's the balance of power between them. And so it's, it, it's what he calls the structure of international politics, right? So it's a, think of it as he's writing during the Cold War where uh, the analysis of international politics is highly influenced by ideological questions, right? One side is right, the other side is wrong. We have all this ideological tone, overtones in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the discourse about international politics. And he's saying, this doesn't matter that much. Right? What matters is we're in a world with two great powers uh, that are relatively balanced in their own power and that have no higher authority to which they can resort, right? So the ultima ratio, the ultima ratio of, of international politics is their capability to use violence against, against each other. And unless, if you're a state, unless you can defend yourself, um, you're in a very dire situation because there's no one you can resort to that could help you face a more powerful uh, adversary. So that's, structure, that's structural realism, right? And then the debates inside structural realism are debates about whether uh, having three great powers is better than having two great powers whether states will seek a balance of power and be satisfied with having as much power as other states, Waltz's argument, uh, or whether states will continue to accumulate power and to desire to accumulate further power even beyond the, the moment at which they're as powerful as others, uh, Mearsheimer's argument. Uh, and so there's there, 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 um, debates about how the structure of international politics affects state behavior. Right? Classical realism, or realism writ large, is a much broader intellectual tradition that is much harder to pin down in terms of what are the core tenets, but it's easier to, to, uh, to identify and describe by what are the core factors they look at 
So they pay a lot of attention to like structural realists more specifically, they more in general pay a lot of attention to power, to interest, um, to the role of violence, uh, even in producing order, right? Uh, so that order often happens because violence is in the background and it's our capability to use that violence that leads to the production of order in which you actually don't observe violence, but it doesn't mean violence is not playing a role, much to the contrary. And the focus on interest and the focus on, um, if you will, statecraft, Right. Now, there's a caricature of this, that so realism is often used not by sort of scholars describing themselves, but as a, as a, as a pejorative to describe others. Right. And the idea is, you know, someone is a realist, oh, they focus just on power and they're warmongers, right? So the, the, the negative connotation of realism is the idea in international politics is that these are folks, in domestic politics it would be, these are folks that are like Machiavelli, right? They're about accumulating more power. In international politics, these would be uh, folks who have no morals, no principles. They just uh, try to maximize power, try to achieve their goals regardless of the, of the whatever means it takes. That's not, um, I would say, doesn't even begin to capture the richness of the, uh, of the tradition of, of, of political realism, which is more about... Uh, it's a cautionary, it's a, it's a tradition that aims at being a cautionary tradition on the use of uh, power. So um, your first book, Theory of Unipolar Politics, examined uh, this concept of unipolarity. Can you give us sort of a, an overview of what the central argument was that mm -hmm. this book advanced? What, what is this term unipolarity? What does it refer to? Right. Um, and what did you specifically argue in the book? So the term polarity in, in, in structural realism designates the number of great powers. So you can have one of three worlds. You can have a multipolar world with three or more powers. You can have a bipolar world like the Cold War with two powers. And then after the end of the Cold War, some people call the new world of the post-Cold War a unipolar world because there's one state that's far uh, more powerful than others, right? so the United States. And I was intrigued by the fact that, so the driving force behind the, the book, what led me to write the book, uh, which, which was my dissertation originally. And so it was about 10 years. Like I started the dissertation in 2005, and the book is 2014, nine, eight years. Uh, what led me to write it was uh, structural realists would argue, so Waltz, for example, would argue that a unipolar world is impossible because a balance will recur. So as soon as one state is more powerful than others, others will get together and create an alliance and balance against that more powerful state. And so as the Cold War ends, what you see is a number of scholars saying, well, this is the unipolar moment, famous piece by uh, Charles Krauthammer, a uh, 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 public intellectual, uh, saying, you know, this will, won't last long. It can't last long because others will balance, right? So the U.S. has this sort of moment in which it can try to shape the world, but it's a rather short time window, right? And then time kept passing and others didn't balance, and so you needed to explain that. And there was a, a problem reconciling, the, the scholarship had a problem reconciling the logic of structural realism that says balances will recur, with this sort of empirical reality in which there's no balance. And at the same time, and going back to Waltz, I'm talking a lot about Waltz, but he's a really great influence in the sense that these are very pregnant books that lead you to think for a long time about these topics. Waltz wrote his book in 79. 
about structural politics, theory of international politics. In 81, he writes a piece uh, for uh, IISS here in London, one of these Adelphi papers. Uh, he writes a, a piece uh, titled, I believe, more, Why More May Be Better, the idea that more nuclear weapons will make for a safer world. And his argument there is that once two states have nuclear weapons, they can't go to war. Okay, And it's very hard to reconcile the waltz of 1979 with the waltz of 1981. So if I can't go to war with you because we now both have nuclear weapons, why am I going to care about our balance of power otherwise? How many tanks you have, ships, aircraft. If we can't go to war, then these uh, sort of smaller caliber, let's let's call it that way, weapons, right, under the shadow of our mutual nuclear weapons, uh, shouldn't really matter. So it's, so it's sort of one one has to give, right? It's, it's difficult to reconcile the two. So is it that the, the, the non-nuclear weapons don't matter, or is it that the threat of mutually assured destruction essentially solidifies in the minds of states what the costs actually would be? Correct. And therefore, you would, therefore, there would be no political goal for which you would actually plausibly threaten to go to war because you're risking the death and destruction of the, the whole country. And so it, what it does is it severs the connection between arms and statecraft. Right? Whereas for millennia you had, you know, you know, as, as Frederick the Great said, you know, diplomacy without arms is the same as music without instruments. So you have weapons, and in the shadow of those weapons, you try to push for your political goals by threatening to use those weapons. Uh, now you have a situation, if you read the 1981 paper uh, by Waltz, in which you can't really go to war to push for your goals. There's no goal that would justify the destruction of the country. And if you if you were about to achieve your goals against a nuclear-armed country, you would they, be defeated by the nuclear correct. exchange that correct. they would launch. Correct. Because you can't defend yourself vis-a-vis -vis the other side. There's there's no, let's say it this way, there's no meaningful notion of victory. Right. If you're about to get a victory in the battlefield, they will launch their nuclear arsenal at you and your country is obliterated. So, <laughs> so I was trying to reconcile the two mm -hmm. and saying... Maybe it's the case that powerful states, states that have technological and economic capability, will balance against other states up to the acquisition of a robust nuclear arsenal, and then are sort of less worried about the balance of power after that. And maybe that explains why after the Cold War, you have a, a world that's unbalanced and somewhat durable. Right? Because people kept calling it the unipolar moment. Uh, but look at it this way. The Cold War ended in 89, when the Soviets decided not to use force to protect their satellites. Uh, so 89, 99, 2009, 2019, it's been 30 years. Right? The Cold War was 45 years. We didn't call it the moment. There was no Cold War moment. So the, the post-Cold War, whatever the unipolar moment is, will probably end up lasting as much or more than the Cold War. So it was increasingly difficult to make arguments about just wait a little more and people will balance. So I guess the elephant in the room for this argument would be the rise of China mm -hmm. as an economic power and as a military one. Correct. So um, China's, the economic development that they've had doesn't need much discussion. They've um, embarked on a naval program that that's that's fairly aggressive. Aggressive might not be the right word to use for it. Yes, but they're they're yes, developing a carrier fleet. Essentially, they've they've developed. Uh, they have a third aircraft carrier that's now under operation. 
um, how would you how would you respond to somebody that um, pointed to the rise of China as as a counter argument to to the position right. that you're taking? Right. So the rise of China is much more momentous economically than than militarily, and, and here's what I mean. So China is now an economy that's depends how you count it, anywhere between two thirds and eighty percent of the U.S. is. I think if they continue on the same trajectory. Uh, in 10, 20, 30 years, they'll have an economy that's larger than the U.S. The big question, I think, for international order, the most interesting question of our times, is whether that means that they will then match the U.S. militarily. Which, by the way, does not mean... So there's two options. One is, I have no doubt, option one, that China will want to become a major player in East Asia and the Western Pacific. I have little doubt that that will be the case. I'd be shocked if the Chinese continue to be happy with the U.S. being the dominant power in their own region, which is what happens today. So the most powerful state in East Asia and the Western Pacific today is the United States. I think uh, we will, over time, over the next couple of decades, evolve to a balance of power in that region, a balance of military power Mm -hmm. in that region. The big question is whether China will attempt to match that's a big question in itself, what happens in the region. But I think the, the broader question, the more important question, is whether China will try to match the military capability of the U.S. globally. Right? So the United States is the yeah. only country that can, to use, uh, back to Ken Waltz again, to use Waltz's term, that can uh, engage in prolonged political military operations anywhere in the world unaided, although help may be welcome. Right. So if the United States wants to fight wars in the Middle East yep. for two decades, as we now know, Hypothetically. they can. Right. They don't need to ask for help. And furthermore, different from the Cold War, they don't need to ask for permission. Right. So, so as 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 Tariq Aziz, foreign minister of uh, Saddam Hussein, said after the 1991 war. If the Soviets were still around, none of this would have happened, right? So if you're trying to think of what, what you, how to react to some crisis in the Middle East in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, you need to think how Moscow will react. We don't need to think. The United States does not today uh, need to think about how China will react militarily to a crisis in the Middle East, i.e. the Chinese do not have the power projection capability to protect the state in the Middle East from American invasion. Sure. And the question is, will they want to change that? So I think that's a really interesting question. Will the Chinese want to be able to project power to Latin America in 30 years? What's in it for them? What what does that do for them? Why would they spend the considerable resources that uh, are necessary to build, say, a a world-class carrier fleet like the U.S.'s, uh, which is uh, above and beyond the others? Um, will they do that? What, 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 what's the benefit of that for them, militarily and economically? And um, just to go back to your original question, what's the argument in the book? The argument is that um, China will not want to do that. China will, will stay uh, a regional power in East Asia and the Western Pacific as long as the United States behaves in a delimited way. And here's what I mean. As long as the United States does the following. Economically does not try to constrain the economic growth of China. So, as long as the United States does not try to constrain the economic growth of China, as long as the United States does not try to take away the nuclear retaliatory capability of China, and as long as the United States does not try to revise the political status quo in East Asia further in the U.S.'s favor, 
by, say, trying to uh, uh, unify Korea and the South, or by uh, revising political regimes that are friendly to the Chinese and making them less friendly to the Chinese. As long as these three conditions are in place, unconstrained Chinese growth, retaliatory nuclear capability from the Chinese not being denied by the U.S., and sort of a maintenance of the status quo in the region by the U.S., I think the Chinese would be happy becoming a regional power and not acquiring a global power projection capability because it's not clear. So it's incumbent upon those who think the Chinese will do that to specify why. What's the benefit of that? Why is it that it would be beneficial to China to have that? What, what's the interest, they, what's the interest they, they pursue better by having an aircraft carrier that can go to Venezuela? Right, and project right. power and the ability to hit targets with uh, aircraft uh, from you know from bases all around the world. Although I suppose the the question that's immediately posed by that is why are they investing resources in developing aircraft carriers if that's the case? So how how so would... the, the aircraft carriers they have are 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 not comparable to the aircraft carriers the U.S. Uh, Navy operates right. right? Um, it's true of the ones they currently have. That's true. Yeah. So, 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 look. The question you ask about the aircraft carriers can be generalized in the following way: for anything like any weapon system, you can point to the Chinese making efforts to make it better, and therefore, I can say, well, yes, they have been making it better. But is this the first of many steps to acquire an aircraft carrier that will match the U.S. fourth class that we just started in the last decade? Or is this a, a limited effort that will lead them to have, yes, an aircraft carrier fleet, but not able to project power beyond the region, which requires bases, etc., etc.? The question is unanswerable empirically. right? So whether this is the first of many steps that, you know, in, at the end there's world domination, or whether this is a limited effort, the question is unanswerable. I'll point to, to a, a, what I think is an important statistic there. One is, two, 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 two things. The first one is, the Chinese economy today, as a percentage of the American economy, is greater, is larger, than the Soviet economy ever was as a percentage of the American economy during the Cold War. That is, the Chinese have more money at their disposal now to balance against the U.S. than the Soviets ever had. Yet, I would hope you'd agree, the Chinese are not balancing as hard as the Soviets did. Right? So they have more resources available, and they're choosing not to spend all of those resources in defense systems. And there's two views on this. One is, well, they're smart. They looked at what happened to the Soviets, and they're saying, well, let's get, let's get an economy that's two or three times the U.S., and then we can invest in a real world-class uh, battle fleet of aircraft. Uh, or the option two is they're not doing this because they don't think it's in their interest. Right. Right. I think for the time being, it's so we can't adjudicate empirically. Right. So the book is an effort to develop a theory that would mm -hmm. enable you to adjudicate why is it they're not doing to, to understand why is it they're not doing it and to understand the conditions under which they would do it. And uh, um, perhaps in, 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 in concluding what, what I'm saying about the book, I would note that the, the the rationale behind the book was, I was reading as a graduate student, I was reading all this literature that started in 91 and that had at the time already more than 20 years 
in which one side of the literature would argue the United States will be number one forever. The other side of the literature would argue this is the year the United States goes down and China matches it. And both sides were able to make internally coherent arguments, and both sides were able to amass some empirical evidence to support their, to illustrate and support their arguments. And one of my ways of doing research is to look at debates that are stuck and try to unstick them. Right? So if, if they're stuck, and for decades both sides can continue to support their arguments, it seems to me it's probably the case that each of these arguments is right under some conditions. So the idea is to specify the conditions under which it will go this way and the conditions under which it will go the other way. That's what I try to do in the book. Um, I think the U.S. has uh, not attempted to contain the economic growth of China until the Trump administration. Uh, we are now in an effort to contain the economic growth of China in some ways. Uh, I think that train has left the station. So I think the time there was a time window to contain the economic growth of China. So in the Clinton administration, if we had decided not to allow China to join the WTO, that would have, a, I think, a profound effect in their ability to generate growth. Uh, by now, the, the, the China suffers more from any trade war with the U.S. than the U.S. suffers, but I don't think it's, it suffers enough. I don't think the United States can actually stymie the growth of China in any meaningful way. Whether it will grow or not is a different question because there's lots of problems that are not related to, to U.S. policy. Um, the United States has done a considerable effort to undermine the nuclear retaliatory capabilities of other states, so we may see some trouble there. Um, a combination of three things. The United States does uh, is always in the business of trying to improve its uh, surveillance and detection technology to figure out whether other states have where they have their nuclear weapons. Uh, their precision targeting technology that would then enable them to destroy those targets before they are launched, those weapons before they are launched. And the third leg of the tripod is then a modest, limited ballistic missile defense that would mop up uh, whatever weapons we can't catch on the ground. Right? The combination of those three has a short-term effect and a long-term effect. The short-term effect is I don't think we'll see any arms control deals anytime soon because the, our, the United States' ability to, to detect and target weapons in, in other countries' territory and then to deploy a limited ballistic missile system, defense system, that would defend vis-a-vis -vis the others, puts the pressure on numbers. Other countries need more weapons to overwhelm U.S. systems. Um, long term, it may leave China uh, and others, but China is the most capable state there beyond the United States, to, to believe that the U.S. is actually determined to um, overrun them. Uh, and therefore that they should indeed deploy, devote more, more resources to their military. We'll see. Um, so that was your current book. That was your initial book project. You, you wrote on nuclear proliferation um, with Alex Debs. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're currently working on, what the current book project well, um, actually is? So for, for the next book, I'm trying to tackle um, a broad topic. Uh, in, in fact, the, I'm trying to tackle what's the relationship between perhaps the two most important concepts in the study of politics, violence and order. Um, so most of the scholarship over, of the last few decades that works on violence and order work, looks at how order breaks down and violence emerges. 
So how do you get civil wars? How do you get international wars? How do you get nuclear wars? How do you get insurgencies? How do you get terrorism? Um, I'm interested in the opposite relation. I'm interested in the, if you will, in the reverse de- relation. How can you end violence and generate order? When is it that violence deployed in support of political goals can actually lead to the creation of a political order that that was part of your goals that you were trying to create with violence, right? So when can you end the use of violence and have a stable order compatible with your political goals? And I'm trying to figure out, so that, as you may imagine, it's an enormous topic on which you have to read floors of the library. Um, it involves, I'm trying to cover terrorism, insurgency, civil war, interstate war, foreign intervention, all of those. So I'm trying to make two contributions here. And this will be a while before it's, before it's done. But the first contribution is to, to structure these fields and to impose order and order on these fields that, that highlights their interrelated nature. So these are largely self-contained literatures on these different topics, terrorism, civil war, insurgency, interstate war. This is all political violence, and you can apply the same framework to it. So part of it is, a, is, a, is an exercise in ordering the field, pun intended. Um, the second part of it is an argument about how most of the work that's been done on this is work that, if you read Clausewitz, as we all should, uh, relatively minor figure. Relatively uh, minor figure, and, and, and someone who, someone whose 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 work sometimes today is considered obsolete. It doesn't matter for for uh, the understanding of current wars, which are very different from the Napoleonic wars, based on which he wrote his his book. Uh, I think Clausewitz still provides the only workable framework to understand the relationship between politics and violence, uh, and I think it may need some. I wouldn't even say updating. I think that's too strong. But it may need some fleshing out. As you know, the book was unfinished, and there's you know, thousands of books on 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 Clausewitz's book. But I think there's still more to, to be done there. But the the most recent work, as a result of both political and 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 forces and forces in the discipline of political science, how this is being studied, has been work that focuses on the strategic and even more the tactical level. So Clausewitz talks about the political level of war, at which the political leaderships decide, of, of the groups that are fighting states or other groups, decide what their goals are. The strategic level, in which they determine what's the strategy through which they're going to reach those goals. And they, they deploy forces in support of that strategy, military forces or armed forces more broadly. And then finally, the tactical goal in which those forces are used in engagement with the adversary, so where the violence happens, battles, whatever you want to call it, firefights, terrorist acts, um, that will produce tactical outcomes that are then aggregated to strategic outcomes and will eventually lead to victory. So the way you win a war is by defining a, a strategy in support of your goal, defining tactics that you're going to employ, according to which you're going to employ your forces, and then the tactical outcomes, the battles, aggregate up. There's a chain of command that gets the message of how the battles turned out and eventually is able to concede or demand at the negotiation table, depending on these outcomes of, of violence. Most of the literature is on the, on the tactical level. The military talks about the tactification of strategy. That is, most of the literature is trying to figure out, how do you end an insurgency? 
Is it by building schools or roads or putting cell phone towers? Or is it by, uh, uh, is it by killing just the insurgents? Or is it by targeting the village in which the insurgents are hiding, etc., etc.? These are tactical questions. I'm not saying they're unimportant. But there, there are equally important questions, certainly at the strategic level, but also at the political level. And I'm trying to look at how the sociology of the, of the sides that are fighting matters. And here, the basic uh, intuition that I hope to flesh out into a, a fully formed argument is that if you're fighting a highly hierarchical institution, say if you're fighting Germany in World War II, they're able to mobilize an awful lot of resources. So the fighting, it will be very difficult to achieve tactical victories over them because they have a lot of forces on the field, sizable forces, well-equipped, etc., etc., well-trained. At the same time, once General Yodel signs the instrument of surrender in 45, the, the organization of the German state itself provides order in Germany, right? So you can, in part, outsource the production of order to a highly hierarchical organization. You don't need to worry that Company C, Regiment 636, is going to start World War III. It, this is a very different situation from when you fight an insurgent group that is often uh, um, uh, not highly hierarchical, sort of all body, no head, uh, in which you don't have a leadership that first can aggregate the tactical outcomes that happen in the battlefield and understand what's happening to decide, okay, it's time to fold. We're going to sign a, a capitulation uh, here. But more importantly, you don't have a leadership on the other side that can enforce peace after defeat. You have yourself to, con to, patrol, to patrol, to control that population if they maintain the capacity for violence. And so the ability to generate order is conditioned to a great extent by the sociology of your adversary. But the organizational sociology. Correct. Correct. The organizational sociology of the adversary. Essentially, a relationship between their capacity for violence and their and correspondingly their, their ability to actually control the population. Correct. And, and for the command and control within the insurgent organization Correct. to control the, the behavior of, Correct, its, of, of its members. So you end up with, with situations, say, like as in Ireland, right? If you sign a peace deal, there's going to be a splinter group of, of, you know, the real IRA, the new IRA that will come up and say, well, we don't agree with this. And so to the extent that this type of phenomenon is possible, it's going to be harder to impose order out of violence. Put differently, it's going to be harder for you to use violence to achieve your political goals mm -hmm. and be able to end the use of violence. Mm -hmm. So the, the, that, that's, that's the core of the, of the argument. I think it will be a, a long time in the making. I want to talk about the sort of implications of this for state-society relations, for legal theory, for the ethics of war, the ethics of killing. Um, so it, it will be, you know, it will be a, a, a long book, uh, a long time to write the book. In one sense, I could see how this, this idea w may have been influenced by counterinsurgency, uh, if the U.S.'s counterinsurgency experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, but it also seems as though you're offering 
And so in, in one sense, somebody might ask whether that limits the explanatory power of, of the argument because it's not applicable to war between states. But I actually, it sounds as though you're offering a general framework. Yeah, correct. It is applicable. It can incorporate war. both small-scale insurgencies. Uh, That's the ambition. Yeah. And, and war between states because it's correct. essentially pointing to the, the, these sort of continuums along these variables and explaining outcomes based upon correct. the kind of organization that you're interacting correct. with. Correct. While at the same time making a, making the case that all those forms of violence sort of follow the same logic, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you should you should look at them through a, the prism of an integrated framework uh, for the connection of, of, of politics and violence. Um, and when you do that, so so put it this way: the contribution is hopefully that, or what I'm aiming at, uh, is a contribution in which. You, if you if you see those phenomena through the lens that I'm laying out, that I'm offering, then you see them in a different way, and therefore will ask different questions and understand phenomena in different ways. We'll put, say, tactical outcomes, or we'll we'll be able to evaluate tactics using uh, metrics that that you didn't have before. That's the that's the goal. Although in in one sense it almost seems as though it's a, it, it's it's a it's an account that would tell a more hopeful story about the possibilities for peace following wars between states. Correct. Um, Correct. So in fact, I make a distinction between threats that emanate from the state and threats that emanate from society. Mm -hmm. Threats that emanate from a state are more costly to defeat, but are, but you're better able to impose order at the end. Whereas threats that emanate from society may be easier at the tactical level to, to achieve the outcome in a firefight, but it doesn't aggregate. So you, you can't generate order out of that. It's harder. So the tactical outcome, a favorable tactical outcome, doesn't necessarily aggregate to peaceful, strategic, yes. and political Correct. outcomes Correct. in the same way as Correct. when you're, you're going to war with the state. Correct. So I, I guess one element of this argument, to bring it back to Waltzian arguments, is that you're essentially suggesting that, that Waltz's second level of analysis, the organizational level of analysis, his second image. The state. The state. The so organization. He, he calls yeah. it the state, but, but I guess I'm speaking it. of it more broadly in terms of organizational characteristics. That matters in a way that perhaps a structural realist with their, who's emphasizing the role of anarchy in, in conflict between states might not necessarily Correct. take into account. Correct. Correct. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a theory, so the, the book is, is titled A Theory of Political Violence, because uh, it is a theory of political violence, of how you should see political violence, how you can see it in an integrated way. I think it is a realist theory of political violence. It's not a structural realist theory of political violence in the sense that, as you just laid out very clearly, I'm paying attention to the second level of analysis, to the organization. So how is violence organized and how that shapes the possibilities of order? What types of order, the costs of creating order, and the, and the very possibility of creating order. At the same time, it's, it's, it has a number of realist intuitions behind it, namely prudence and skepticism about the ability to achieve political goals uh, by using violence, which is... Uh, contrary to the view of the realist that the warmonger is, is sort of a, an age-old uh, uh, precept of realist thinking, right? that, that you should be careful about these schemes to improve order by using violence, to improve the, the state of the world by using violence. 
Although, in in one sense, I guess it it does sound as though you have a bit of uh, a bit of the realist's pessimism, in in the sense that you're suggesting that even though even if conflict among states becomes less frequent due to technological developments in terms of the military weapon systems that they have to deploy and the economic interests of these states, insurgencies that exist don't have simple tactical or strategic solutions. Correct. Which I suppose is sort of an accurate depiction of the world that we're currently, that we're currently so. experiencing. And... And it's and it's shifting the, the the emphasis of the analysis from the tactical, right? So we have an enormous effort, both by states and by scholars, yeah. trying to understand whether the, you know what's the effect of giving cell phones, what's the effect of schools and uh, you know teaching them agricultural skills and and all this stuff. And and that's all fine, but it it should all be seen in the context of a political framework, which is the 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 big issue at stake in the conflict. And and we're losing just because it's not um, ju- just because it, it's not clear what the political frame what the political solution would be it doesn't mean politics doesn't matter it may just be that there is no solution and because there's no political solution we're focusing on the tactics and and we're deluding ourselves to a certain extent because that's essentially the only variable that you can try to Correct. influence. You can control, control it, and you can measure the outcomes. Right. Although, couldn't somebody come back and say that? Well, what 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 you're suggesting is that the critical thing is actually that we try to influence the organizational structure of insurgencies. Yes, but violence often has, as we know from from much literature on, on that, violence has um, consequences on the organization of sure. the adversary that are not necessarily leading to further integration. Much to the contrary, right? So, so often. So, so, so the sociology of the adversary matters, and this has two consequences. One is adversaries that are less hierarchical to begin with will be harder to, to allow you to generate order. A second aspect is you may, as a result of the use of your own violence, make the adversaries less hierarchical, right? For example, efforts to decapitate right. Uh, right. the leadership of groups um, it, it can have consequences that, if you understand them through this framework, will be very different from your measure of tactical success, right? You may be able to kill the leader of whatever the group is, uh, but long downstream, this is going to have very uh, pernicious consequences in the possibility of, of creating order. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about this project as it develops, and hope to have you back here at King's College at some point. It would be a pleasure. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Thank Nuno. You. Thank you.